Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference Podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr Declan Downey of the School of History and Archives, University College Dublin. His paper is entitled The Sovereign of Our Liking, Lineage, Legitimacy and Liegemen, The Irish Catholic Nobilities and the Spanish Habsburg Monarchy, circa 1529 to 1651. On the 27th of April, 1529, James Fitzgerald, 11th Earl of Desmond, wrote a personal letter to the Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain, Charles V and I, in which he provided an account of the arrival of the imperial envoy Gonzalo Fernández de Córdoba in Dingle and their discussions during the previous week. Also in that letter, the Earl wrote a detailed explanation of his motives for transferring his allegiance from the overlordship of Henry Tudor to that of Charles of Habsburg Burgundia. Desmond, in his own hand, his reasonably good ecclesiastical Latin, submitted himself, his earldom, his personal property and followers, to imperial sovereignty and protection. This letter was intended to underscore the seriousness and reality of the habsburg geraldine alliance that would be formalised in the signing of a treaty the following day in a ceremony in St. James's Church in Dingle. Among the most notable features of this personal letter were Desmond's argument for the legitimacy of his action, his profession of lineage from the ancient Welsh, Irish, and Spanish princely and royal houses, and his sense of being a liege man, whose chivalry and honour decided to whom he should offer his sword and estate. The Habsburg-Geraldine Treaty of the 28th of April, 1529, was framed in the form of a supplicatio, that of a lesser prince to a greater. The first part of the document is a detailed history of Desmond's Welsh, Norman, Tuscan, Irish, and Spanish lineage. It is followed by an explanation of his abjuration of English overlordship. Effectively, Desmond's argument was that Henry VIII had broken the terms of the Laudabilita by his alleged refusal of justice towards the Irish. This reflected the earlier remonstrance of the Irish to the Avignon Pope, John XXII, in 1317. The first part concludes with a classic apologia for seigneurial rights and privilege, and reiterates the Earl's Spanish descent through his Gaelic ancestry. Also, it provides an account of the available military forces at his disposal. The second part of the document is a formal statement of submission to imperial authority. It reflects the ideology of the Reichsidee, or universal ideal, which saw the emperor as the ultimate arbiter of justice and protector of Christian civilization, as professed by Ariosto, Gattinara, Valdes, and Erasmus. Quote, I, the aforesaid count, beg and entreat that in consideration of the above stated facts, of the wrongs and injuries inflicted upon me and mine by the kings of England, 
His most invincible sacred august majesty, the emperor, be pleased to provide opportune redress. I faithfully place myself with all my estates, vassals, relatives, and adherents under the protection of the mighty prince, chosen and appointed by God and men to be supreme lord of the world and to redress the wrongs of mankind and so forth. It is probable that the latter three dignitaries who witnessed this treaty, Dennis MacDonald, who is described as a master, Dennis Cather, a doctor of arts and medicine, and Morris Curley, the dean of Artfurt, in which Diocese of England is located, who was also probably the Earl's chaplain, but had partaken in the embassy to, the, to Toledo the previous year, and who had accompanied the imperial envoy to Dingle, may have had some involvement in formulating this document. Furthermore, the qualifications held by these dignitaries indicate that they were men of learning and had possibly studied in some continental university. Perhaps they too were acquainted with the Reichsidee. And certainly the ease and frequency with which the Geraldine chaplain had travelled back and forth to Spain prior to the Treaty of Dingle suggests a certain familiarity on his part with contemporary Spanish Renaissance culture. But with regard to the legal constitutional position of Desmond's submission to the overlordship of the emperor, under the terms of Pope Adrian IV's bull Laudabilita, the earl does not seem to have had any qualms or doubts. The bull entrusted the papal fiefdom of Ireland to the lordship and protection of Henry II and his successors, the kings of England. The terms of the bull decreed that this trust was given on the conditions that the rights of the Catholic Church in Ireland be preserved and that justice would be maintained in Ireland by the English monarchy. It was on the grounds that justice was not being administered by the Tudor regime in Desmond's opinion and that his seigneurial rights were being threatened that he appealed to the secular arm of Christendom for protection. In view of the fact that in Desmond's correspondence with Charles, no mention was made of obtaining papal approval for Desmond's submission to the emperor, seems to suggest that the Earl was aware of Clement VII's situation after the sack of Rome in 1527. The Pope was in manu imperatoris, and therefore was not in a position to argue either with Charles or Desmond. The Geraldine move into the imperial orbit at this point in time not only indicates well-informed calculation on their part, but also suggests an appreciation of European realpolitik. By the time when Charles V's letters of confirmation reached Desmond in July 1529, Earl James was dead, possibly by poison. However, the idea of translatio imperii, or transfer of authority, by the Irish noble grandees is not. Indeed, the content and the style of presentation in Desmond's personal letter to the Emperor and in the Treaty of 1529 set both a precedent and a template for future Irish memorials and petitions to the Spanish and Austrian Habsburg monarchies during the 16th and 17th centuries. Following the Henrician Schism and Reformation, not only was the English administration of justice in Ireland an issue for the disgruntled or alienated among the Irish higher nobility, who sought to justify their belligerence against the Tudor regime, but also the defence of Catholicism. 
Now, the military assumed a central significance in successive justifications and legal arguments for war against the Tudor regime. By 1534-35, for instance, Silicon Thomas, Lord Offaly, had invoked the terms of Laudabilitur in justifying his abjuration of Henry VIII. This time, the House of Kildare renewed the Geraldine-Habsburg alliance and declared itself for the Emperor and Pope in its ill-fated war against Henry VIII. Later, in 1569-70 and in 1579-80, another Geraldine noble, James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, would repeat the pattern of justifying the transfer of allegiance from Elizabeth I of England to Philip II of Spain. In each of these instances, justification for translatio imperii, or transfer of authority, over these noblemen and their estates, and by extension over Ireland itself, were based on laudabilita, which formed the constitutional and legal fundament of the Norman conquest of Ireland and the raison d'etre of Hiberno-Norman and Old English landholding and title. The political and religious reformations under Henry VIII, Edward VI and Elizabeth I, and their respective policies of centralization, subjugation, anglicization and plantation, combined with their patronage and ennoblement of new English adventurers, whom the Gaelic, Hiberno-Norman, and Old English Catholic nobilities disdained as low-born upstarts, undermined the claims of legitimacy and continuity of the old elites in Ireland. Those who renounced their fealty to the Tudors, and in the following century to the early Stuarts, combined their invocation of laudabilita with use of contemporary legal and theological arguments of Francisco de Vitoria and Francisco Suarez for the deposition of a tyrant. For instance, the Dean of Kells, Charles Reynolds, invoked Vitoria in his presentation on behalf of Silicon Thomas to the Scottish King James V and to Pope Paul III. Later, Bishop Cornelius O'Mulrian of Killaloo and the English theologian Nicholas Saunders and the Spanish Franciscan diplomatist and later Archbishop of Dublin, Matteo de Oviedo, provided much of the intellectual content for Fitzmaurice's and later Earl Gerald of Dresden's justification for war on Elizabeth I. Indeed, Pope Gregory XIII raised the Desmond War of 1579-83 to the status of a crusade. Later, during the Nine Years' War from 1592 to 1601, the aforementioned Oviedo, Archbishop Juan de San Clemente Torquemada of Compostela, Archbishop Edmund McGowan of Armagh, the Leuven-based theologian and future primate Peter Lombard, and the Franciscan theologian, strategist, and future Archbishop of Tune, Florence Connery, drew from the aforesaid constitutional, theological, and legal sources, as well as the works of Suarez and Roberto Bellarmine, in combination with the socio-political history of Ireland in providing justification for translatio imperia to the Spanish and papal courts, and indeed in propaganda to a wider audience on behalf of the Ulster Earls, Hugh O'Neill and Hugh O'Donnell. One of the most striking characteristics common to all the memorials of the Irish nobles between 1529 and 1629 in justifying their rejection of English and Protestant overlordship and later kingship, or in seeking pensions to sustain them in exile, are the well-grounded legal cases imbued with contemporary and mostly Spanish Renaissance legal theory and rooted in the papal donatory bull concerning Ireland without a military. Happily for the reader of these documents, 
all the contents are not just dry legalities and formulae. The arguments are augmented, enlivened, and spiced with well-targeted doses of good old-fashioned snobbery. <laughs> that was expressed in a manner that was designed to appeal to the grandees of Spain and to the black nobility of Rome. For example, in Florence Connery's brief relation of Ireland and the diversity of the Irish of the same, presented to Philip III in 1618, the author wrote, These several kinds of Irish agree all in one thing, to wit, in being true Catholics and children of the Church of Rome, yet do they differ in desires to have princes and laws over them. Everyone desiring his natural inclination and imitating his predecessors, and therefore the ancient Irish, as these that are descended from the Spaniards, desire always to be governed by the kings of Spain and bear great affection and love to the Spanish nation. Let us consider another brief relation addressed to Philip III on the 17th of February 1619 by the Galwegian Dominican Richard Birmingham. Quote, in the new plantation of English and Scottish heretics during the times here in Ireland, the king, referring to James I, orders to leave their lands all the Catholic Irish knights for the pure Irish descendants of the Spanish who 2,000 years ago won the said kingdom and governed it with justice and holy laws. They are now expelled from their natural properties. All this is done in order to destroy the ancient Catholic of Spanish Irish who are of superior quality to the heretics. Of course, one should bear in mind the politico-religious mindset as well as the propagandic purposes of Conway and Birmingham in interpreting these documents. However, Irish Catholic nobles were not to be outdone by the clergy in expressing Catholic credentials and racial identity with the Spanish. In two letters dating from 1627 and 1628, Mary Stuart O'Donnell reminded the Cardinal Protector of Ireland and the Pope that she was of royal Gaelic and Catholic blood, and was descended from a line of 30 kings who reigned in uninterrupted succession, and that they could trace their bloodlines to the ancient kings of Spain. In order to avoid spiritual pollution, as she described it, and debasement of her blood through forced marriage with a lowly English or Scottish heretic planter, she chose exile and appealed to the honor of the Pope to provide her with sufficient money to maintain her noble estate. She certainly drove a hard bargain. By the mid-17th century, the papal nuncio to the Confederation of Kilkenny, Cardinal Rinuccini, reported to Cardinal Pamphili on the 31st of July, 1646, that some Irish were considering inviting a Catholic priest from abroad, quote, by natural sentiment, Spain was their first choice yet France seemed to be in a better position to assist them." Unquote. By the end of the 17th century, in a petition to King Charles II of Spain, Don Bernardo O'Neill of Ochnacloy, County Tyrone, an army officer and knight of the Order of Santiago, reminded the king of the blood ties that existed between the Spanish and the Irish, as they were descended from Mil or Milesius of Spain, who lived long before the time of Christ. Don Bernardo listed 14 authorities to support his Venetian genealogy. Among them were the 7th century authority Isidore of Seville, Florian de Ocampo, the chronicler to the Emperor Charles V, and Philip of Salvanbear, author of the Historia Catholica Invernia Contendium, published in Lisbon in 1621. 
It is evident from the information presented thus far that among the Gaelic and Taberno-Norman nobilities who had become alienated from the Spanish crown or from the English crown, reference to the common political and religious causes of Spain and the Catholic Irish who claimed Milesian or Spanish origin formed a staple part of the formulae in their various memorials, petitions, and self-justifications. It suggests that these elements were essential to their sense of self-identification, their cultural confidence, and sense of connection with that of a major European power. Knowledge and proclamation of their lineage and of their common religious and political cause with Habsburg Spain served the purpose of legitimizing them. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you will have noticed that I have not used the traditional common currency of rebel or rebellion in reference to those Irish who endured and fought against Henry VIII or Elizabeth I. In my opinion, we need to re-examine the use of terms such as, quote, the rebellion of Silicon Thomas, or, quote, the Desmond Rebellion, or the rebel he will need. From the perspective of the Tudor monarchy, or indeed of English administrators and officers, they and others mentioned in this discourse may well have been rebels or in rebellion. Terms the mere Irishry or the mere rebellious Irishry or the Queen's Irish rebels commonplace in their correspondence. Yet if we consider that the Tudor monarchy, with the notable exception of Mary I, or the early Stuarts, had broken faith with their liegemen among the nobilities of Ireland through their policies of land expropriation, patronage of low-born adventurers, exclusion <coughs> from governments, never mind the breach of laudabilitous terms concerning religion and justice, then we can appreciate objectively that in terms of feudal law and honor concerning the nobiliary contract between peers of the realm and their primus inter pares, the monarch, they had been betrayed by their ruler. Thus, in view of the obligations of honor to their own lineage and legitimacy, a point which was referred to earlier this morning by Dr. John Cronin in his presentation, they could abjure that ruler whom they could legitimately regard as a tyrant, and they could legitimately transfer their allegiance to another sovereign prince. Now this line of argument is very similar to that which was used by William the Silent, Prince of Orange, and the states of Holland, Zeeland, and Utrecht in their act of abjuration of Philip II in 1580. Their arguments bear striking similarity to those that were employed by their contemporary Irish counterparts. Furthermore, the Dutch case was based, like those of the Irish, on medieval constitutions, papal bulls, feudal law, the nobiliary contract among peers, and ironically for the Spanish Habsburg monarch, on the legal theories of Victoria and Suarez. Where the Dutch succeeded in obtaining transatio imperii for themselves by refusing admittance of papal temporal authority in their affairs, the Irish, on the other hand, were hamstrung by a papacy that was reluctant to increase Habsburg power by acceding to Irish demands for sanctioning the transatio imperii to the Spanish monarchy. When one observes the political landscape of 17th century Europe, it is not apparent to prima facie to the average Irish person the role played by Irishmen or men of Irish origin in the high politics of the age. 
In the early decades of the 17th century, Donald Carmel, son of Bear, and his son Domizio, ennobled by Philip III as Counts of Berhaven, served successively in the Spanish councils of state and of war, while later in mid-century, Oliver Walsh of Carrick Mines was Chamberlain and Counselor to the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand III. And his son, Francis Paul, would also become an imperial court chamberlain and counsellor. About the same time, Dominic O'Daly of Kilsarkin, County Kerry, acted as the effective foreign minister of the Portuguese monarchy under John IV. And by the close of the century in the Holy Roman Empire, John Andrew Hamilton of Leitrim would become president of the Imperial War Council in Vienna, while Francis Taft of Ballymote and Carlingford would serve as chancellor or prime minister of the Duchy of Lorraine. Taft also had the distinction of being the first Irishman to be invested with the collar of the Golden Fleece. In the 17th century Spanish monarchy, Irish emigres, especially the Gaelic and Hibernian Norman nobilities, became very closely associated with loyal and distinguished military service to the Habsburg dynasty. Their commissions, careers, and ennoblement in ranks of both the Spanish and indeed the Austro-Bohemian nobilities depended absolutely on their allegiance and commitment the House of Austria. That absolute devotion to the Habsburg dynasty was proudly expressed in 1649 by the colonel proprietor of the regiment of Tyrone, Hugh Eugene O'Neill, to Philip IV. Quote, this regiment is among the oldest, the most valorous, and most renowned of the royal armies of your majesty. Since for the past 60 years it has served continuously in the wars of Flanders, the Palatinate France, and now of late in Spain, taking part in all the occasions of war on land and sea, without ever failing at any point of duty to the royal service. Until now, there have died in this regiment more than 12,000 Irishmen, most of them at the point of the sword. It, this regiment, is the mother of five other regiments of the same nation, which have served the crown of Spain in many fields, with the courage, love, and fidelity, which is known to all. In the milieu of the Gaelic, Hibernian, Norman, and old English nobilities of Ireland, and indeed in the world of the nobilities of Ancien Regime Catholic Europe, ancestral lineage, swordsmanship, horsemanship, Catholicism, and classical education were not enough for self-definition of identity or for self-promotion. One was expected to illustrate the family name, preferably by honours won on the battlefield. The way of the sword was the most honoured occupation among the nobilities of Europe at this time. It formed the basis of their values and of much of their wealth and enabled them to become part of what Thomas Barker identified as the strategic elite. We need to bear this point in mind in our interpretation and understanding of the motives and driving forces behind the political and cultural identification of Irish nobles with the Spanish Habsburg monarchy, and indeed of the migration of Irish nobles into the services of the continental powers. They were not mercenaries in the modern sense, neither were they necessarily changing national loyalties in the modern sense. They were liegemen who accepted service under a certain ruler, but not with a nation state. Among the most notable exemplars of such liegemen in the late 17th century were Prince Eugene of Savoy, of Frederick Hermann, Count von Schomberg, James Fitzjames, the Duke of Berwick, Patrick Sarsfield of Lucan, and Henri de Massouet, the Marquis de Rubigny. Furthermore, consciousness of caste among Irish emigre nobility facilitated their identity with their continental counterparts and their interests. In the course of time, many became naturalized subjects, and 
More often than not, this was defined by personal honour. Therefore, one should beware of attributing such motives to assumptions of political or national ideology. Thank you very much.